Well, here in Acts 14 and 15, we've got this terrible division that there was in the church in, uh, in Acts 15 uh, recorded. And really, you could look at Paul's life from various sort of perspectives, various angles, and you could say that, looking at his letters, that much of his life was caught up with controversy amongst those that he had converted and with his own brethren. And he could have very easily allowed all that controversy to completely hamstring his preaching. One thing I love about Paul is that all the, <clears throat> all the way through, he is a preacher. And he never allows the fact that even all those in Asia turned away from him to stop him carrying on with the preaching of the gospel. Time and again, when God's truth has been revived on the earth, communities have arisen who have preached the, the gospel bid whole communities like fellowships or individuals or little groups here and there, ecclesias here and there, been very powerful in their witness, God has blessed them, converted lots of people, and then, you know, the rain sets in. Then there comes this argument, this tension, this internal uh, damage. And so many people are sidetracked by that to the point that they, st they cease preaching the gospel, the baptisms stop happening, and the whole thing within a generation, or often far less, just fritters away into nothing. And the only thing that's been achieved is that those who were converted and died, uh, whilst the community was still active and strong, they uh, are on the track to being in God's kingdom. And we need to take a lesson from Paul, because we're all of us, I think, caught up at different times in all this kind of infighting amongst those who have been converted to Christ. And Paul's example is to keep on and on preaching, right up to his deathbed, it seems. Or he didn't die in bed, I don't suppose. But, uh, you know, right up to the end of his life in 2 Timothy, he's on about preaching. And this was very much what kept him going. And it's that focus which there should likewise be in our lives. Now, I just love, before we get to uh, Acts 15, I just love going through uh, Paul, Paul's teaching here and Paul's preaching. It really is... Uh, inspirational. There in verse 1, Paul so spoke that people believed. From that I take that presentation of the gospel is important. That it does matter how those basic truths are presented. Just presenting them as blandly as can be and shrugging and walking away. That is not the way to do it. It cannot be. If we have any sense of the eternity which our audience may miss, if we have any sense of the utter supremacy of Jesus and the real eternity and salvation that is truly in him, the radical transformation of human life that is in him, uh, we will preach this. And we won't just dispassionately uh, just say, well, yeah, this is how it is, and there you are, take it or leave it. There will be a desire to try to by all means persuade people. Now, it was Paul's manner of speaking that led to these people believing. And yet, 2 Corinthians says a number of places that his, his speaking was rude, contemptible, and he says himself, 1 Corinthians 1.17, uh, I did not preach to you with wisdom of speech. And yet he so spoke that men believed. And in fact, later on, uh, in this chapter where we've got 
them calling Barnabas Jupiter, this is in verse 12, and Paul Mercurius. Jupiter and uh, Mercury sort of appear together in the, the legends, and Jupiter was always the, uh, the most uh, impressive, uh, humanly speaking, of, of the two. And I think, therefore, that it was exactly because Paul was not a great speaker that he so spoke that men believed. I really think that is, that is the case. And so let us not think that I am inadequate. Because you've got the Gideon syndrome, when he says, I'm inadequate, and God says, go in this your strength. That it is exactly because we are inadequate, and we recognize that, that God will work with us. So then the Paul, 2 Corinthians 10, 10, 11, 6, whose speech was so rude and contemptible that it was mocked at, uh, by those that were against him, and he says, I preach to you, 1 Corinthians 1.17, not with wisdom of speech, that he so spoke in that inadequacy of speaking in order to bring people to the Lord Jesus. And this is why the most successful preachers of the gospel that I've encountered were always people with inadequacies. I mean, very visible inadequacies were all inadequate. Uh, but people with obvious inadequacies. Somebody had a stutter. Somebody uh, had a, a facial deformity. Somebody's life wasn't quite in order. Another sister was a chain smoker. Yeah, th these are the kinds of people who convert tens of people to the gospel. It's not the people with the debonair presentation. And unfortunately, uh, the flesh makes us think that the more slick the presentation, the more effective it's going to be. And actually that's not the case at all. You see that really in, in verse 15, when they decide that Paul and Barnabas are Jupiter and Mercury, that they're gods who've come down to them. And they, he gets really concerned about this. And he runs in amongst them, or they run in amongst them, saying, we also are men of like nature, or like passions, with you. And we preach unto you that you should turn unto the living God, not unto us, but unto the living God. So it was exactly because, he says, we are one of you, we're of the same nature, that we preach to you and ask you to believe us. And the Greek seems to imply, this uh, phrase that's uh, translated, uh, men of like passions or like nature, men affected by the same passions, people who get Impatient. I mean, what are human passions? Sexual passions, uh, desire for wealth, anger, uh, self-defense, all, all this sort of stuff that is human passion. He's saying, look, we're affected by the same passions that you are. And on that basis, we are making this appeal to you to turn not to us, who are just as weak as you, but to God. And, of course, when he goes on in, in his preaching here in Acts 14... Um, and he talks about how um, it is God who, verse 17, gave us rain from heaven. Well, it was Mercury that was supposed to give rain, and he gave us uh, fruitful seasons and gave us uh, food and gladness. Well, that's exactly what uh, Jupiter was supposed to give. So what they're saying is, no, not to us, but unto God. Now, this, I think, is the basis of our bridge building with people. I would say that preaching is really about bridge building. And it is on the basis of being one with them. 
It's on the basis that we are all human beings, on the basis that we are all affected by the same passions, that I am not a man of steel, I am not uh, a concrete image, I am not you know, unaffected by, by my humanity. That is the basis of appeal to people, not slickness uh, and, and not uh, a humanly smart appearance. And time and again, our outreach efforts and those, I think, of the whole Christian world fall down flat on their face on this. The most beautiful, whatever you want, videos, PowerPoint presentations, etc. People say, oh yeah, we must do the best. And huge amounts of time are spent on this. And where does it really get? It may make us who already believe feel good that we have publicity material that's sort of up to scratch. But you know, the real people who make the converts are just very ordinary people who quite openly show that I am affected by the same passions as my audience. Now, Paul really, really had a heart that bled for people. It was not at all a dispassionate putting up of a website or, or, or just saying, well, you know, if, you, if you've got any more questions, buddy, you know, just come to me. Uh, we'll see uh, what we can say. Over to you. All the best. No. He's stoned in verse 20, and he's dragged out of Lystra as if he is dead. Um... Sorry, that, that's um, verse 19. They stoned Paul and drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. They dragged him out without the city limits, which were outside Roman jurisdiction. So they were not going to get in trouble for having murdered somebody within Roman jurisdiction. And so there he is. He's been done to death, really. And he must have, of course, realized now how Stephen felt. Uh, be wonderful. Paul and Stephen meeting in the kingdom um, but anyway there he is supposing he'd been dead he was thought to be dead in verse 20 the disciples stand round about him and he rises up comes into the city the next day departs with Barnabas to Derbe and then he preaches verse 21 the gospel to that city and taught many you know hobbling and bleeding I mean the physical uh, effects let alone psychological trauma after having been stoned to the point that you are assumed to be dead um, is fairly major and yet with all those physical signs upon him of what he'd gone through he doesn't give up he doesn't say look I must take a break he's so filled with this desire to spread the gospel that he he goes to Lystra uh, and uh, he, then he, he goes on to, to Derby and, and preaches and, of course, Timothy was originally from Lystra, as you see from chapter 16, verse 1. And that whole family of faith that he was connected with, you wonder what part Paul's example uh, played in their, in their conversion. And he tells in verse 22 that it is through much tribulation that we must enter into the kingdom. As if he's saying, look, tribulation is par for the course. We must go through this. And I think he may have taken his idea for that from the Lord's parable of the sower. Matthew 13, 21, where in that parable he teaches that when tribulation arises, some will be offended. He doesn't say if tribulation arises, he says when. It's as if tribulation surely comes. People respond to the seed of the gospel and tribulation shall come. 
And yet we all tend to be taken by surprise when something happens. Illness, loss of money, loss of security, loss of relationships, uh, betrayal by, by family, by your partner, by children, by parents, whatever. Uh, and we tend to be surprised. And it's that surprise at tribulation which I think causes many to stumble. And Jesus says that when tribulation arises, many stumble. And what Paul is saying here is, look, it's going to happen. If you sign up for the life in Christ, you're signing up to tribulation, for sure. I mean, Jesus did, after all, say that he asks us to carry a cross and follow him. Now, we must have tribulation now or at the day of judgment, because the same word is used in Romans 2, verse 9, to talk about how those rejected at the, day, at the day of judgment will be given tribulation. So then, you either have your tribulation now, or if you cleverly think you can skirt round it, well, you're going to be condemned and you'll have it then, at the day of judgment. Don't forget, we live in a world which is expert at trying to find ways out of tribulation, clever, smart ways around suffering insurance policies, safety standards, uh, wearing your seatbelt and all that kind of stuff. And uh, of course there's nothing wrong with those things in themselves. But let's just remember that this is all a world that is trying to avoid tribulation. And whilst, because we want to serve the Lord as long as we can, uh, and as effectively as we can, we may in our own way uh, make use of those things, the fact is it's going to come. It really is, and it must do. And so don't be surprised or be caught by surprise. I know people who've, whose tribulation has uh, been in terms of uh, being disfellowshipped or having been uh, very badly treated by people who they previously trusted as believers. And some of them never get over it, and they live their lives never having gotten over it, because I guess they weren't expecting it. And of course tribulation by its nature is, I suppose, unexpected. And the whole thing of, why me? Well, let's try to see tribulation as something that has got to come. When tribulation arises, some will be offended, but it will come. Um, and so, from that point of view, although we may be uh, surprised by the channel, the form of it, which God uses, it's not surprising that it's going to come. And also, don't uh, underestimate the stuff that you go through. Because if somebody says, tribulation, I don't think I've had any of that yet. Yes, you have. It's just a case of perceiving it and recognizing it for what it, what it is and calling some things for, for what they are. Some things that you've gone through are horrific in spiritual terms. So, the Paul who has shown us that example of devotion to the gospel, uh, etc. We now uh, see him in a totally different theatre, as it were, in Acts 15, this whole argument about should the Gentile believers have to be circumcised. Well, to us, that's pretty obvious. They don't need to be circumcised. The Jewish law is finished. It can't bring salvation. It was ended when Jesus died on the cross. It, it's all pretty, pretty obvious to us. But not to everybody at that time. And whilst we may shrug our shoulders and shake our heads and think, how sad they had a division about such petty issues. 
I'm sure that's what the first century believers would think or would have thought about the things that maybe we argue about. Now, one thing that I would like to say as we come to this chapter 15 is that this is not an example of how compromise works. That's often how it's interpreted. Because the Council of Jerusalem here didn't work. You only got to read Paul's later letters, and it is quite clear that he did not stick to the agreements made, and it is also perfectly clear that the inspired teaching that he had about food and blood and things like that was quite different to what you've got here, where the Gentile believers are told, look, you've got to uh, stick to uh, certain, certain things so as not to upset too much the, the Jews, the Jewish believers. And yet Paul actually teaches differently in later letters. Now, seeing that Paul was inspired, I think you can simply say that Acts 15 might have been a, a fair effort to bring about a compromise, but it didn't work. And of course, as we know, ultimately Christianity divided, the Jewish wing went back to the synagogue and the other wing went to the Gentile world and mixed in all the pagan ideas, beliefs and practices in with Christianity. And so the whole wonderful thing, that the whole true Christianity was, was lost. And I would argue that both doctrinally and practically and morally, the apostasy of the early church, the, the losing it that happened, was directly related to this inability of Jew and Gentile to get on with each other. The Jewish basis of Christianity was lost as the Gentile element became almost anti-Jewish and they lost their focus for example on the, on the unity of God um, and the, the Hebraic background to a lot of the Bible was, uh, was forgotten and therefore <clears throat> they started to get into all sorts of wrong ideas about pre-existence of Jesus um, the Trinity and, and the rest of it and yet all that would have been avoidable if I submit they had taken the view which Paul takes in his later letters that look guys there is one body we are all baptized into that one body we are indivisibly together and one of the first principles of Christianity according to Ephesians 4 is that there is one body as fundamental as the fact that there is one God and I think in our day, a similar failure to focus upon the clear Bible teaching of the unity of the body is what has led to so much disillusion and, and, and breakup. And there's all sorts of attempts that have been made to paper over cracks by addendums, by uh, great big councils working things out, a form of words that should be acceptable to both sides but it never really in my experience has ever really worked because of course a form of words is a form of words and one group of people take it one way and the other take it another way and it's only words and words in that sense are cheap the real bottom line is the radical teaching of unity amongst all those that are baptized into Jesus and this is the tack that Paul takes in his later letters not saying let the tail wag the dog and if uh, the Jews think that uh, you know oh, alright well we want you to be circumcised but okay we'll let you not be circumcised as long as you don't uh, eat blood and as long as you you follow our kosher food laws no 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 Paul was teaching quite opposite later on that look 
Uh, food is given you by God to enjoy. So sure, as he says to the Corinthians, don't purposefully provoke and irritate your brother and make him stumble by your liberty. But for crying out loud, you're welcome to eat exactly what you want with thanksgiving to God. This, uh, his later teaching on these points is very different to, to what you've got here. This, the lesson I would take is that clever compromises don't work. It's got to come from the heart. Now, interestingly, the legalists in verse 1 say, I'll say it, unless you keep the law of Moses, circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Later on in Acts, Peter, uh, Luke records Paul saying during the storm, when some of them want to escape out of the boat, he says, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. It's Acts 27.31. And the similarity of wording is significant. I think the idea is that it's not a case of telling our brethren, you're not going to be saved unless you follow my particular interpretation of something or other, in this case circumcision. He's saying, actually, you can't be saved if you divide from the body. That is what goes wrong when people leave the body, push off on their own, they don't make it, and very often the people they've left don't make it, because we all need each other, as Paul teaches. Every part of the body is vital for the rest of the body. And the Greek word for heresy is the word that we've got in, the, in verse, uh, verse 5, uh, when we read of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. There shouldn't have been within the church a group specifically defined as former Pharisees, or current Pharisees, who, who now believe in Jesus. This shouldn't have been like that. So then, the sect or the heresy, the real heresy, is division. And it's so, so sad that so often people have made division on the basis of heresy hunting. You see the point? They made a heresy, a division, a sect, because they were hunting a heresy. Uh, and this has just gone on and on and on. Now, Paul himself was not, not perfect in all this either. We've got this sad incident later on in, in Acts 15 and 38 uh, where he refuses to take John Mark with them uh, because he says that he departed from us from Pamphylia and went not with us to the work and the contention was so sharp between them that they had a division. So when we read there that Paul says, no, he did not go with us to the work, you know, Luke is quoting there from the Septuagint of 1 Samuel 30, verse 22, where uh, David and his fittest men were going chasing their enemies and getting the spoil, and then all the wicked men and men of Belial, of those that went with David, said, because they went not with us to the fight, we will not give them any of the spoil. Now, why is this connection being made? Because it is being made. Well, the wicked men and men of Belial were those who were the strong, who were strong enough to keep on and on going with David, chasing the enemy when the others were weaker and stayed behind, and they say, they went not with us to the work, to the fight, so we're not going to fellowship with them. We're not going to treat them as if they're us, because we're not going to share with them the spoil. So is it 
Is the connection not saying that Paul, who was the most zealous soldier of David and Jesus, as it were, uh, that there could have been, was in some sense a man of Belial, a wicked man, because he marked certain people as sort of second class. They didn't go with us to the fight, to the work, so we're not going to share or fellowship with them. That's a trouble with having any uh, spiritual maturity, that the temptation immediately is then to think, ah, oh, yeah, well, those who are not on my level, I don't want a fellowship with them, either practically, morally, doctrinally, or whatever. And I think the connection is criticizing Paul for this. And uh, that word for departed, that, uh, that is used in, in 38 he departed from them. It's the Greek word for apostatize. He apostatized from them. You read that one or two ways. Luke is maybe saying, you know, he really was an apostate. Or it could be that actually uh, Paul considered that if you're not with me, then you're not an apostate. And that, that is a, a typical false reasoning, which has caused so much division. Now, of course, Paul, over the years, improved, and at the end of 2 Timothy, in his last words, he, he says, you know, uh, basically bring Mark um, with you, and he, he kind of puts it behind him. But it maybe took him a lifetime to get to that point. And this contention between Paul and Barnabas, uh, it's the same word in Hebrews 10.24, which I rather like to think that it was written by a more mature Paul, when he says we should consider one another to provoke or to contend unto love and good works, as if he's taken a sideways look back at himself. And the same basic word is in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, when he says love is not easily provoked. This same basic word translated contention uh, here in verse 39. So then, we are to understand then that really contention and division uh, and that sense of uh, anger uh, and provocation that comes from somebody who is weaker than us, who maybe is a bit apostate or who has apostatized from us personally, this makes us actually a man of Belial, a wicked man. That's the connection with 1 Samuel 30.22. They went not with us to the fight. They went not with us to the work. Therefore, we won't fellowship with them uh, with the spoil. And it took Paul a long time to realize that that is not right. And that instead of spending our mental energy having contentions or provocations, instead let us be provoked to love and to good works and I have the spirit that is not easily provoked. Now, I think therefore that uh, as you come and face the cross, you see there, of course, the ultimately well-lived life. The life that didn't spend a single second on needless contention. The life that was lived to pave the way through the cross to the ultimate unity between Jew and Gentile. And if only every Jewish and Gentile believer in the first century had looked at the cross of Christ in their mind's eye and realized that he did this to bring unity between Jew and Gentile, there would not have been the division there was. There would not have been Acts 15. And how then does the cross of Christ bring unity? Well, I think 
if each of us look at him there, as we should do, and we are convicted of our own sinfulness, convicted of the extent of his grace, the certainty of my salvation because of him there, and if we are awed by it all, to the point that you do say, wow, then the outcome of that is that you will never be standoffish to your brethren. You will not be easily provoked by them, and therefore and thereby, a unity will be developed between you and the brother or sister sitting next to you, which as John 17 says is so strong it can convert the world.